Hey everybody, welcome to This Good Word. My name is Steve, and we are on episode 31. The word today is Shalom, part two. And I am here with my great friend, Rabbi Alan Ullman. Alan was on the show a few months ago, and we looked at the word tov, which means good. It's all over Genesis 1, and it's all over the scriptures. It's one of the major arcs of the scriptures, and it defines who you and I are. Uh, Good, beautiful, full of God. And today, we're talking about this rich, expansive, and beautiful word, shalom, which means peace, but it also means wholeness, completeness, and a sense of well-being far beyond that which is merely uh, just because your circumstances changed, but a kind of well-being that goes all the way down to your soul. That's shalom, and today we're going to talk about that. Uh, a, a word about Rabbi Allen, he, he is just one of the most delightful people that I have ever met. Uh, he travels the world, and he gathers primarily with Christians, with Jews, with other people, and he gets into rooms of 12 to 15 people, and he opens up the scriptures, and we have this expansive, rich, beautiful conversation around what God is doing in the world now. He has this belief that I share that the scriptures are powerful because they happened, they are happening, and they will happen. So not they, they're not a wooden, inflexible document that's designed to give us rules and a strict way of life that we can never live up to. They're stories, and they're a river full of people that are heroes and villains, and many times all at the same, all within the same person. So I want you to listen to this uh, podcast, and I want to show my cards. Part of the reason why I interview people like Rabbi Allen is because I have this deep, deep desire to be one of the voices in the world that says that uh, the story found in the scriptures is generative, it's beautiful, it's rich, it's expansive. It's not just something that had relevance thousands of years ago. It has relevance today, but not because it gives us a list of rules. Because it's the story in which we can finally find ourselves and we can find our way home. So without further ado, please welcome Rabbi Allen and I hope you enjoy this. I loved it. We're going to have him on the show many, many more times. Uh, and so enjoy it. Well, here we are. It is a wonderful afternoon in Wyzetta. <laughs> Just good word coming at you from Wyzetta, Minnesota. Or Wyzada, as the kids used to call it in Beverly Hills 90210. They were from Wyzada, they said. They pronounced it Wyzada. Ah, we might edit that part out. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, leave it in, please. Leave that in. Jason Priestley, you know. Uh, okay, so I am here with my dear friend, Alan Ullman, the rabbi. Uh, this is part two. Last time was, I don't know, last fall maybe, and we had this rich, expansive conversation, mm. All I mean, spanning from 
Genesis all the way to craziness, and it was beautiful. <laughs> One of my most listened to podcasts, which is really fun. Many people from really all over heard it and loved it. So we're coming at you again. This is part two. We're gonna go at least ten parts over the course of the next several years. You know, so we got that going on for us. We are joined by Noah Ullman, Rabbi Allen's son. Noah, you want to give a little shout out to your peeps back in somewhere? Uh, yes, I'll hide all my friends in Washington uh, at the Capitol. Hope you're doing well. Yes. Noah really is sort of, you know, an amazing, an amazing person that I love. So maybe we'll have him on the podcast too. But we're going to jump right in today. Uh, we're going to focus mainly on the word shalom. I did a podcast on shalom a couple of months ago. And there's just actually so much I need to learn. And really, this is research for a book I'm writing. <laughs> but I just thought it would be fascinating to open up the conversation to all the all the good people at It's Good Words. So, um, first of all, what is Shalom? In like, if would you call it one of the top four or five major arcs in the scripture? Would you call it the major arc? And would you define it for us, please? Oof. Well, it's sweet to see you and to be together again. Um, Shalom, I would say, is definitely one of the major arcs in Scripture. And it's so the root Shalom has uh, has the root Shalem. And Shalom, we normally translate as peace or sometimes you'll see translators translating it as well-being. Um, Shalem uh, means to be whole. So the idea of peace is the idea of um, wholeness, and we're thinking about what that might mean. And one of the early usages in the text is in Genesis 37, um, verse 13 and 14. Israel, the transformed Jacob, calls to Joseph. Joseph says, Hineni, in Genesis 37, verse 13, here I am. And in saying Hineni, um, here I am, Joseph opens the door to hear what Israel has for him. And then in Genesis 37, verse 14, Israel says, I want you to see to the shalom of your brothers and the shalom of their flocks and bring me back word. And this becomes the life mission of Joseph. Does he know it at the time? Yeah, great question. Because um, he's what, 17? He's 17, according to the text, right in there. And he goes off in search of his brothers instantly. He thinks they're in Shechem, so he goes to Shechem. And this is in 30, Genesis 37, verse 15. And, but his brothers are not there. But a man comes upon him, and the man asks him one of those huge questions that is sort of belied by its simplicity. But it's a profound question. Um, he asks him, he asks Joseph, what are you seeking? And Joseph responses, I am seeking my brothers. Now, does he understand the fullness of his answer? Hmm, hard to say. I, I, my sense is no, but that's just a sense. Uh, but, but this is one of those examples. So I'll just pause. I'll please. press the pause button that there's one way of reading the scriptures, and that is, oh, a guy was looking for his brothers. A guy asked him, what are you doing? He says, I'm looking for my brothers, and we move on. That's one way of reading scriptures. That's a way of reading scriptures that they happened, and 
in some mysterious way, they probably make sense for us, but we don't know how. There's another way of reading scriptures. Could you enlighten us? So what I see going on in the text are what I would call trajectories. So this request of Israel to Joseph is within a context in the book of Genesis. Um, and it's tracking that context that helps us to understand the enormity of the request and the mission. Um, the first passage about brothers um, is Cain and Abel. Okay, and then, sorry, I'm, I know I'm going to bug the snot mm. out of you, but I want to help people study this way. So when you hear a question, what are you seeking? And the guys say, I'm seeking my brothers. Your mind goes, okay, where was the first time that we read about brothers? Exactly. And so that's going to take you back to... Right. Yeah. Bravo. You're absolutely right. Um, I left out that puzzle piece. I instantly, when you ask the question, go, I start to think about the trajectory. And the trajectory yes. is, where is the first usage of brothers? And so went right back to Cain and Abel, and the, the first passage about brothers, or you could also think of it as the first passage about human beings born of human beings outside the garden. Ah. Um, prior to this, there are human beings born of God inside the garden. Um, but this is the first passage of human beings born of human beings, and it turns out to be about brothers. And there was a question put to Cain after he's killed Abel. And of course, there's also the, the sort of huge question of why is the first passage about brothers end in one brother killing another? God puts a question to Cain where is your brother? Cain's answer is, am I my brother's guard? God doesn't really answer that question. Um, although God says many things of great import in that moment. Setting forth what I would say is one of the major trajectories of the book of Genesis. So, Cain kills Abel. Then we Look at another passage of brothers, Isaac and Ishmael. And Ishmael is exiled from the camp. Then we look at the next passage uh, of brothers, which is Jacob and Esau. Esau threatens to kill Jacob. Jacob is sent out of the camp. Then we get to Joseph and his brothers. And as you recall, in Genesis 37, just a little bit further on in the passage, the brothers debate between do we sell him into slavery, exile him? Do we kill him? One brother wants to restore him. So as we, Reuben being the yeah. one brother. So we now see there's a trajectory working through the whole book of Genesis about our relationship to our brother. And when Joseph and his brothers are finally reconciled in Genesis chapter 50, suddenly the book of Genesis ends. And we open, roll the scroll, turn the page. We're in the book of Exodus, and we're no longer talking about brothers and sisters, incidentally. Just we're now suddenly on to what does it mean to be a sacred community? So one of the arcing trajectories of the book of Genesis is what is our treatment of our brother? Mm. And the options seem to be exile, kill, and then 
it's in that track that the transformed Jacob, Israel, asked Joseph to see to the shalom of his brothers. And when Joseph takes on that mission, we now have a context for understanding what is shalom. It's making peace where there is conflict amongst the family. And when we can resolve that, then in the text, we get to move on to sacred community. But so that's part of this river. But there's another dimension of this river that I got to get into real fast. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, Adam is comforted into the garden of delight to work and guard it. Then as Adam and Eve are exiting the garden in Genesis 3, verse 24, we see that the cherubim, the cherubim, are guarding the way to the tree of life. So, ah, we were given the task to guard it in the garden. As we leave the garden, the way to the tree of life is still guarded, the exact same word that was used in Genesis 2.15, Except for now in Genesis 3.24, that task mission has been given to the cherubim. But then in Genesis chapter 4, Cain's response to God is, am I my brother's guard? Yes. So now it turns out that guarding wasn't just something that was for the garden only. Guarding is about something that takes place also outside the garden. And when we guard our sisters and brothers, we are, in a way, guarding the garden. So I, I'm saying that there's a trajectory yes. of guarding. And then in that act of guarding, what's going to be the key to the fulfillment of the guarding? Shalom. Seeing to the shalom. So it's in that river of context of sibling relationships in conjunction with the idea of what does it mean to guard that shalom comes into play and it's as if we are looking at two rivers that become one and shalom is one of the keys now as you track on this word shalom it's very interesting in the priestly blessing the lord bless you and Keep you well. It's act. You could also translate that because the Lord bless you and guard you, mm. and it's the exact same word again for guard that was used in in Genesis chapter four in Cain and Abel, in Genesis three twenty four, and Genesis two fifteen. And then, sure enough, lest you think that these rivers are not continuing, this is Numbers chapter six verses twenty two through twenty seven, where we're in the priestly blessing. The Lord bless you and guard you. And the last thing is God's face upon your face, and he will give you his shalom. shalom. So guarding and shalom are very deeply interwoven all through the text. And sure enough, you can start to think about this in a, in a number of different frames and looms textually, because one of the things that we learn later that we are to guard is the Sabbath, Shabbat. And Shabbat, Sabbath, literally means to stop. And we are to guard 
sacred time. And of course, oftentimes when we refer to, refer to Shabbat, we say Shabbat Shalom of all the possibilities yeah. that you could have had for what you say with Shabbat. So there's something about guarding and understanding the nature of guarding that leads to Shalom textually and moving through our relationship to people and sacred time. And when we see the wholeness of all of that, that those, while they might appear to be separate rivers, they're actually a whole. But then we remember anyway that we know there was one river in the garden that separated into four, but it starts as one. And so that seeing the text, first you need to see the, we see, need to see the trajectories and how they're moving through the text, but then we see how they come together and make actually a whole. Hopefully that's begun to answer your question. Yes. <clears throat> Just one more quick puzzle piece on Shalom, um, which is, when Joseph comes out of prison in Genesis 41, he's brought before Pharaoh. Pharaoh says that he hears that Joseph has the capacity to interpret dreams. In Genesis 41, verse 16, the first words out of Joseph's mouth after years in prison to Pharaoh are, Not I. God will see to Pharaoh's shalom. And from this, it, it just sort of jumps out at the reader that when Joseph accepted the mission of seeing to the shalom of his brothers, the shalom of his brothers includes Pharaoh, and he's actually in this very exquisitely subtle but beautiful and profound way saying Pharaoh is his brother, all of Egypt are his brother and sister, and all the people who are going to come to Egypt for food. So seeing to the shalom of our brother from Genesis 41, 16 on is starting to become part of the trajectory of what it will mean to love your neighbor as yourself. Okay. Well, right. I know, I know I just went off in a bunch of different no, places. I love that. So I'll stop. So I'm going to recap a little bit and then I have a million questions. Please. So we have brothers in the book of Genesis. We have Cain and Abel. We have Jacob and Esau, we have the brothers of Joseph, and they're all, in some senses, at war with each other. The early children of God, who are not even the, the world, but just brother to brother, they're, they're enmity. There is enmity. And it brings me back to Genesis 3, when, it, when we read that there will be enmity between your seed and... Yep, and so this goes all the way back to the curse. And so say a little bit about how the working out of shalom, which starts with sort of nuclear family and then emanates outward to Egypt, the world, um, starts, with this, starts with this curse. Okay. Are we well, tracking on the right? Well, you've added a, a very profound puzzle piece. Um, the word in Genesis 3.15, the serpent will attack the heel. Yeah. The heel is the word akev. Akev is 
the root of the name of Yaakov, which is Jacob. And now suddenly we're again thinking about how the text works. If a word is used early in Genesis, the serpent's going to attack the heel. That becomes something for sure the text is going to explore. And sure enough, there's a character, a human being, whose name is Jacob, whose name literally means heel. And we're told he's grabbing onto his brother's heel. In one of those incredible, what I would call Rorschach moments in the text, all it says is he's grabbing onto his brother's heel. But people will often interpret that as he's trying to do something negative. Or maybe he's trying to pull his brother down, or he's trying to come out of the womb first, or there's often... He's the deceiver. Yes. Ah, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> We're quick to assign diabolical, uh, uh, I don't know, flavor to an, to an embryo. <laughs> right, 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 exactly. You, you know what I was thinking would be fun? Um, just having so much fun watching you during this podcast. Uh, it would be fun if we were doing this podcast live with a bunch of people in the room and they could also throw in their questions too. Um, All right, that's part three. Oh, I didn't know. We'll do a part three next time you're in town and we will, it'll be town hall version yeah because because just to watch you and experience you and just all the fun it is to be together doing this i, I was thinking wouldn't it be fun to share it um let's do it so your wish is my command oh all right <laughs> <laughs> um so he's holding on to his brother's heel and there are many many possible interpretations although the text actually offers none for what it might mean but just a quick thought Maybe they're twins. They've been in the womb. They've always been connected. And it's, a, it's you're just holding on because that's what you've been doing all this time. Um, so here's a character who's named Heal. When he receives the blessing in Genesis 32, verses 27 through 29, and he becomes Israel, Fascinatingly enough, heel will walk with a limp. And it's at that moment of transformation that he becomes Israel. And suddenly, heel is walking with a limp, meaning the way that he is walking has changed forever. It's not Jacob, but the transformed Jacob, Israel who in Genesis 37 sees that the thing that must be done is to address the challenge of what is going on with the next generation, the sacred future, the brothers. Now, he, Jacob, in Genesis 33, Israel, has already begun to change his relationship with his brother. But for a variety of reasons, they couldn't go on together. And, and, but now he understands that the true sacred future is for the brothers to be reconciled. But it's not a task he can do himself. It's rather a task for the next generation to do together. And when one thinks about the trajectory of the book of Genesis, and we're told in Genesis 37 verse 3, Israel 
the transformed Jacob loved Joseph. And this now connects us to a really critical word and theme all through Scripture, both in Older and Newer Covenant. What is love? First usage of the word... What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. <laughs> oh, I thought you were going to sing, What's love got to do with it? There's so many. So, yes, Noah is right now shaking his head. <laughs> so, um... What would Jay-Z say, though? Mm-hmm. No. <laughs> so, um... So the first usage of the word love in Genesis is in Genesis 22. Take your son, your singular one, the one you love, and offer him up on a mountain that I will show to you. In other words, the first usage of the word love is not between a man and a woman. It's not between adults. It's rather between a father and a son. And it's about offering that son to God. And then a next major usage is right here in Genesis 37, verse 3. And if you take your son, your singular one, the one you love, and we're told Israel loves Joseph from all his sons, and then here comes the offering. He offers up Joseph. And the offering is not that Joseph should die, although to send him to brothers who hate him, the offering is for shalom. And you can start to see the river that's going to lead to John 3.16. Um, moving from Genesis 22 into Genesis 37, forward in the text. Um, so when we think about love, there are many dimensions of love in the text, but I'm just talking about first usage and then tracking that first usage. And... And so here comes Heel, who's now walking with a limp, whose name has been changed to Israel, who has the capacity to see that the thing that's missing for the sacred future is their shalom. Yes, and this is part of what I want to pull out of shalom, is it takes a tremendously loving and wise father to say, I care about what's next so much that I will send my son to go see to the Shalom. And I don't know how old Jacob is at this point in time, Israel is, but he's probably not beyond his strength. Let's put it this way. Great question. He's certainly, it's not over yet. From the time that they go down to Egypt, meaning Israel and the sons, once Joseph is there, he will live another 17 years. Genesis 37 may precede that by as much as 20 years. It's just not entirely clear how long it is between Genesis 37 and the second year of the famine. Here's what we know. He goes down to Egypt. He becomes a, a servant in Potiphar's house. He's then in prison. We know he's in prison at least two years, but it could be much longer. And then there's Pharaoh's dreams, the seven good years. Right. 
<clears throat> the first bad year, the second bad year. So you've got at least 10, 12 years there minimum. Um, and so somewhere between 12 and a bit more. So that would give you at least another 30 years, which is why I think it makes perfect sense what yeah. you say, that Jacob Israel is not at the end of his strength in Genesis 37. But, and, and even if he's toward the end, he recognizes this, this shalom must be done by the next generation. And there's something to that that is so, so wise and precious. We're always trying to put the fight onto our own back. I mean, right. we're, we're always seeing every fight as our fight, but it's not necessarily... It's not necessarily our fight. And I think when we hear children of Israel, we hear this theory. You know, we like the children of Israel is this enigma. But the children of Israel were Jacob's kids. Right. <laughs> I think they were his exactly. actual exactly. his actual children. And so he had the wisdom and the urgency to see the sacred future, at least enough to say, if someone doesn't do something, this great dream which began with my grandfather, is already going to die out. And we're only two generations down. And it's already in peril because my sons are, are going to, they're, they're ready to kill each other. And I think there's, there's something to that. Like, what does it mean to see the urgency of a moment and to do something about it? And what that doing something is, is wrapped up in love. Send the one that you love into harm's way. And we, and we do see that over and over. I mean, when you reference John 3.16, that's, of course, for God so loved the world that he gave. And so a father sends a son into harm's way for the good of the world, even though that world hates him. And there's, um, so you have all of that. So that's part of the major building blocks of Genesis, right. is the understanding that our fundamental, one of our fundamental duties in life duty i don't like the word duty necessarily but um one of our opportunities in life is to see the moment that we're in and see what we can do to guard our brothers yep right so <clears throat> can we talk a little bit more about guard because when we hear when i hear that word i hear you know like the, there can be a clutching of it a hoarding mm. uh uh, there can be a fierce protection of a you know a parent to a child. Guard that child. We're not talking about that. No. Uh, we're talking about something utterly different. So can you do a little word smithing on the word guard for right. us? Right. So the as as we mentioned, the first usage of the word guard is in Genesis two fifteen to work and guard the garden. Yeah. Um, and that the word guard is shamar uh, in Hebrew shin memresh. And then it's used again in Genesis 3.24, and there's a ch the cherubim and the fiery ever-turning sword that is guarding the way to the tree of life. And to me, this is one of those moments where there's so much in that little verse. Um, there's a tendency, I think, for a lot of us to see the Garden of Eden as destroyed. For some reason or not there anymore but it says very specifically that it's guarded and that the way of tree the way to the tree of life is guarded so i want to suggest the garden is still there it nothing ever happened to it and eden 
literally means delight. So a garden of delight, it's still there. The way to the tree of life is being guarded. And, and, and here comes something else that I think we tend to think, although, you know, who knows what any particular person is thinking, that the, that there's somehow some sort of walls or something, that it's protected. But in fact, there's nothing about any mention of walls or anything that's surrounding it. Now, where it gets tricky for us is in the Saxon language, the word for guard becomes the word for garden. So when we think garden, we naturally, because English uh, derives from, in part from the Saxon language, um, when we think guard, we think something that, or when we think garden, pardon me, we think something that is guarded. But there's no such sense in the text. The word guard and garden are completely separate words. <coughs> so then a garden of delight, it's being guarded, but those are completely different words. Mm -hmm. And there are no fences or no barriers. So what are the cherubim doing? Well, people read it as keeping us out. Fair enough. Perhaps. But another way of thinking about it is that, in fact, they show us where the entrance is. Meaning they show us the way in. And when something is guarded, you know it's precious. And if we go to Exodus 25, verses 16 through 22, it turns out we've just received the Ten Commandments and Torah at Sinai. We've just received the tablets, God's living word. We've, and in Exodus 25, 10, we are getting the instruction for building of the ark that the tablets are going to be stored in and the pact of the covenant and then in the instruction for the building of the ark who shows up again in exodus 25 16 through 22 the cherubim oh but the cherubim the last time we saw them they were in genesis 3 verse 24 and they were guarding the way to the tree of life and now here they are again guarding. They're guarding what's in the ark. And then in Proverbs 3.18, we learn it is a tree of life to them that hold fast to it, and all of its supporters are happy. Oh, so in fact, Torah, God's living word, is the tree of life. And we're guarding it, but not to keep people out, but rather to invite people into the garden and to be at one with each other and with him in inhabiting what was always there for us all along. So I don't see guarding yeah. as related to keeping us out, but rather showing us where the entryway is in. That's beautiful. That's, that's really beautiful. And to say that... Um, it, it, for those of us who, has, who have eyes to see the cherubim, the messenger, yes. there are how many messengers 
are there that we stumble upon every day. Right. And if we could learn to recognize, oh, there they are, that means I'm in the I'm in the ball game right now. I mean, right. I am here. I here I am. I'm I'm at the entrance to the garden. I'm at the entrance to the Torah. I'm at the entrance to Shalom. I'm here. I am. And now I can start playing the game. I mean, now I can start doing it. Yes. So, <clears throat> can you turn the page a little bit and tell some stories, if you would? of ways in which you've seen people seeing to the shalom of their brothers and sisters. Because I think that can that can seem like the task of a rabbi, the task of a pastor, the task of the professionals, and then what do the rest of us do? But what are some ways in which, think about your travels to Ireland, to England, to Wyzetta, to wherever, and how have you seen people that maybe don't even know it, maybe don't even know they're doing it, but you can see it. So um, this is a story that happened um, in Ireland, and I was teaching in the Dublin area, and then we're, we were heading to West Cork, and so somebody from Dublin, who was a native of Dublin, was driving me to West Cork. It's about a four-hour drive, and there are parts of West Cork that are sort of Garmin-proof. No um, GPS system is going to get you there. It's these very old roads, and unless you know where you're going, you're, you're going to get lost. So we've been driving now for about four hours and we are lost and we <laughs> <laughs> just completely and we circled around this particular area twice and we're now circling around it a third time and in this third time there was somebody who we passed in the second time circling around who was walking and we now have passed him uh it's our third time circling we've passed him a second time and he waves to us and um he has this sort of classic West Cork accent, which is very specific and very unique, and which I can't do and wouldn't even try. Um, ah! <laughs> and and he says, um, "Are you lost, mates?" And the guy who's driving the car is from Dublin, and he answers, um, "Yeah, we're we totally can't figure out how to get to where we're going." And the guy from West Cork says, "Well, with an accent like that, because the Dublin accent is completely different. It, with an accent like that, no wonder you're lost." And then there's a little bit of repartee going back and forth, and we're laughing and having a good time. And so the guy from West Cork finally says, "So where are you trying to get to?" The Dublin guy gives him the address, and the guy from West Cork bursts out, bursts out laughing, and he says, "Well, no wonder you, you can't get there from here." And um, Literally, we would have to drive about 45 minutes, a bunch, bunch of old back roads. It, it's very close, but you just would have to go around the bend and under the tree to get there. So, he says, why don't you park your car over here, and I'll walk you through these two false small family farms, and you'll be at the house. So, the guy um, stops his life, whatever he was doing. He was going somewhere, and he walks us about 12 minutes to where we're going. And we're laughing and joking. We walk through one of the farms. We don't see anybody. We walk through the other farm. We see a few people. We're talking. And, and, and in fact, one of the people from the second farm joins us on the walk just because. Why not? Why not? <laughs> right. And we get to the house. We gave each other a hug and a few more, uh, you know, a few more jokes back and forth. And, and then it's one of those moments where I'm really pierced um, because I couldn't remember a time when I had stopped for a half hour to help a complete stranger. Mm. And that's something I see a lot in Ireland. Um, but there's a willingness to just completely stop your life, 
for somebody you don't know. You'll, you're probably never going to see us again. I haven't seen him. It was five years ago. And what does it really mean to see to the shalom of our brothers and sisters and the shalom of their flocks? And it's about what we do in our daily lives. Um, it's not always a, a mission. Oh, now I'm on this mission. Ergo, I'm doing something for God. Therefore, the guy was just walking down the road. And um, we had a lot of fun. And somebody else even joins us. It's just kind of crazy stuff. And, and, you know, I have been musing a lot on that experience in the last five years and thinking about, well, how do I translate that into daily life? And how do I stop being so busy and so trying to get to the next thing that I can't stop and just do whatever's needed? It doesn't have to be on my mission list, you know? Right. And I think that's where we can get a real kind of lost. We make things, they don't count unless they're huge. Right. I remember several years ago, I was sitting around a table with you, like uh, we end a lot of our studies with meals, which is, we'll do it tonight. And <clears throat> one of us asked the question, what are some of the practices, spiritual practices that you're trying to do in order to find God in your life? And, then, and everyone was answering the typical answers, you know, beautiful answers. I mean, I'm reading my Bible, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. And your answer was, when I email people, I try to picture their face in my mind and wish them peace. Right. And I've never forgotten that. I mean, that, that like this, this revolutionary way of seeing to the shalom of your brothers and sisters through a task that you might consider kind of like a drudgery you know like yeah. an email Ugh. right but you pause and you try to get noah's face in your mind <laughs> uh, or my face in yes your mind. Absolutely. Um, absolutely or whoever and it's a way of seeing to the shalom and i th i just think um this whole idea of seeing to the shalom of our brothers and sisters. Number one, it makes us ask the question, who is my brother? Yeah. Who is my sister? Yeah. And you can't get very far in the scriptures without realizing that's an ever-expanding answer. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's ever-expanding. I mean, um, and I think that's what the, I think that's what the parable of the Good Samaritan is trying to tell us, yeah. is who is my neighbor? I mean, you know, so it goes from who is my brother to who is my neighbor. Right. And there isn't anyone who isn't my well, neighbor and, at the end of the day. And that's the point of Genesis 41, 16. Joseph is saying, um, God will see to Pharaoh's shalom. Yeah. Well, Pharaoh is neither his brother or his neighbor, except for now he kind of is. Yeah. You know, um, one more quick story, uh, if, if it's okay. Yes. Um, so this is in Northern Ireland, and it's about seven years ago now. Yeah, anyway, I'm on a reenactment pilgrimage of St. Patrick. <laughs> yeah, don't ask how I got there. Uh, I know the story. So. Oh, I want to. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, so it's a reenactment pilgrimage, and it's five days, and we're just walking around one of the paths that, according to the tradition, St. Patrick walked when he was in Ireland. This one happens to be more in Northern Ireland, although it crosses into Ireland. Anyway, and we're walking by this very small town, maybe 10 houses, two pubs, and it's 11 in the morning, and I somehow have gotten, it, there's about eight of us, and I somehow have gotten to the head of the line, which makes no sense, because 
I of all people, everybody else is from Ireland in the group, except for me. Um, but I'm in the head of the line. And as it happens, suddenly, as we're walking by one of the pubs, 11 in the morning, four guys come out and they're literally throwing up in the street. It's not pretty. Steve Haynes, Scott Groff. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> Shh. You weren't supposed to tell Steve. No, it's not that. It's not okay. that. So anyway, um, and I just, you know, kind of gingerly walk around them. And the guy who's leading the walk, I've walked around them, I've gotten around them, whistles at me, and he just kind of looks at me askance, and then he looks at them. And I go, huh, isn't that? The whole point of the walk is to be with people, to meet people, to walk with people, to have people walk with you. And that's what happens on this walk. It's quite astonishing. And um, so I've stopped my life in America. I've gotten on a plane. I've traveled thousands of miles. It's day three of a reenactment walk. We're already, you know, We've been walking and meeting people. People have been meeting us. We've been invited into people's homes. Other people don't want to talk to us. But we're just walking. And and I walked right by the whole point of the trip. And so he starts a conversation with them. Turns out that they were getting drunk because one of the guy's brothers was in an automobile accident the night before and died. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and... Here I go, walking right by it. And then we start a conversation. And suddenly we're all in conversation together. And a couple of us go in and get a couple of cups of coffee. And, and we're sitting there talking. And then the guy who is leading the trip says to me, I think you should maybe do a study session with these guys. So here we are, sitting on this sidewalk. It's a small town. And there's eight of us. There's four of them. It's a small town. Pretty soon a few people see us studying. They come join us. And before we know it, there's about 20 of us studying. Now I'm teaching, so I'm fine now. And we just go on. And then the study session comes to an end. And two of them join us for the day's walk. And one of them actually stays with us that night. And we're sleeping out on the ground because it's a reenactment pilgrimage, and that's what St. Patrick did. So we sleep out that night. He sleeps with us. And then the next day he goes his way, and we continue walking. So seeing to the shalom, it, it isn't about necessarily having a plan. It isn't necessarily about knowing what you're doing. It To me, on some levels, it's just about being present to each other. Yes. Yes. And... <clears throat> maybe counteracting the natural tendency we see all around us to turn aside yes. from, oh, look at that, those awful people getting drunk, or being Republicans, or being Democrats, or being Christians, or being Muslims, or look at those awful, and instead saying, oh, how do I stop, enter in, with no agenda other than to be with, and I think there's something... There's something very powerful in that. And that's exactly what's in Genesis 37, verse 15. Joseph is looking for his brothers, can't find them, and somebody comes up to him and says, what are you seeking? And for the very first time in the book of Genesis, somebody says, I am seeking my brother. Yes. The very first time. 
And in that moment, when I walked by those four and the person leading the walk didn't, I started to understand what does it truly mean to seek my sister and brother. And it's in the moments, it's in the most, it's the essence of the simplicity of our daily life. Uh, yeah. And say it again. Um, it's in the essence of the simplicity of our daily lives. Who am I walking by? Who am I not seeing? Now, of course, like a lot of people, I have a history. And in my history, when people come out of a pub at 11 in the morning drunk, those are the people you avoid. Um, but somebody else has a history, the person who is leading this walk, and says, if somebody's coming out of a pub at 11 in the morning drunk, there's a reason. Someone died. Some, they're going through pain. They're, yes. Yes, yes. And that's another, okay, I love that we went there. I love that we found that. Because if we just took two seconds to ask the second question. Right. What, what are they doing hanging at 11 o'clock? Oh, what are they doing coming out of a pub at 11 o'clock? Most people, you know, they're even people who are, especially people who are trapped in addiction, there's a really good reason that we would fall to our knees um, in, uh, you know, in love, if we if we just knew knew the story, which is not to say that we're the world's heroes and we're going to rescue every person that's in addiction. We're not, but when we pass by them, and that's I think the beauty of the Good Samaritan story. Exactly, is mm. the guy would there's three people that pass by, a guy that's beaten up by the side of the road. Three people pass by them. They didn't go to Africa to go. They passed by them. In fact, mm. if they had gone to Africa, they would have done something because they were on the mission. Right. <laughs> but because they were, it was two religious people, two yeah. religious people yeah. on their way to somewhere. They they don't want to be unclean, so they don't touch this this body. And then this half caste sort of does, and it's yeah. this confrontation. Yeah. It's this confrontation of, well, if this person is your neighbor, and you wouldn't consider them your neighbor. Then there's a little reflecting to do. So, and I don't want to give the impression that um, I'm not in favor of being on a mission because I actually see myself as on a mission. But there's also the dimension of just what happens in our daily lives. No, that's good. That's well said. What I hear you saying is don't compartmentalize. Exactly. Don't exactly. say there are certain things that are on mission, and then there's the rest of your life. Right. It's all. It's all mission. Exactly. It's all mission. Right. And be specific and get hone in. Um, so, uh, Noah, my friend, anything to add? That was beautiful. Very well done. Mm. I thought that was, that was really cool. Well, I stole the whole Genesis 3 <laughs> seed in the heel from you, from our conversation a couple days ago. Um, so that was beautiful. That was, that was right from that conversation. Um, we got to wrap it up. Uh, we actually are heading into another study session here in Wyzetta. We're going to do a Seder meal together mm. and we're going to study the four questions and, um, I just can't wait. Um, so we have to prepare for that, but I want to thank you, mm. Alan, so much for taking the time to talk for an hour and shed some light on, um, I think what is underneath the, the words that we read and how 
are we invited in? One of the things that we've started to say at our church is that the scriptures are have happened. They are happening, and they will happen. Amen. And I, mm. I'm almost positive that's from you. So, <laughs> yay, uh, yay to that. Um, but I, but that helps me believe that. I was talking with someone else lately, and we were talking about facts. Mm. And it's a fact that blah blah blah. Uh, and then we started talking about how truth is so much bigger than fact. Fact is important. Facts are important. Facts are the foundations of things. Without facts, we'd be lost. But truth, mm, mm, it's yeah. bigger. It's 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 more nuanced. Well, that's a big conversation because one of the great challenges is that we in Western civilization, <coughs> for a lot of very good reasons, see truth and facts as the same. But in Biblical Hebrew, the word for truth is emet, um, and the word for faith is emunah. Mm. And emunah has the root amen. <coughs> Sorry. Yeah, a word we're all familiar with. Amen means to confirm or support. Emunah is that which we confirm or support, faith, that which we confirm or support. But what's not so well known is that the word emet, truth, has the root amen. So what's true is not fact-related in Scripture, but is faith-related. And sort of climbing out of that mindset about what is the origin and connective tissue of truth is um, one of our great challenges. Perhaps another podcast. I think it might be the next podcast because, because I do think it's one, of the, it's one of the big challenges of bursting into this next iteration of spirituality in the 21st century we, we have to understand a richer version of that okay uh thanks everybody thanks noah thanks alan we're going to sign off uh we're dust and breath we are limited and limitless we are human and we are holy and we are in it together thanks everybody and we love you steve, <laughs> love you, steve. <laughs> <laughs> Woo! thanks everybody <laughs>